Testing one, two. So, um, I invite you if you if you can kneel with me. Let's have a, a word of prayer. The camera's not plugged in, honey, so we're not even using it. <laughs> so if you if you can kneel with me, if not, that's that's fine too. And hopefully, the mic's working. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for uh, providing a place for us uh, to to worship according to the dictates of our conscience. And uh, uh, we are coming into a time where all of the uh, liberties are under attack. And uh, we know that uh, according to your word that uh, this has to happen in order to uh, for the devil to enforce a mark. He has to have control. And so... When we see these things, sometimes we can become disheartened. And Father, we we uh, should listen to to your words when you say, "Look up, uh, for our redemption draweth nigh." And so, Lord, help us while time is coming to a, a close here to be the best witness that we can be to our families and our neighbors and and the in the world. Um, as the, your word says, "Work for the night is coming." And uh, so, Lord, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us, especially on this Holy Sabbath day. Uh, be with us and help us to continue to look up and to walk by faith. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you will pour out the, the Holy Spirit upon us. We pray for the latter rain. We pray also, Lord, that the early rain will do its work to prepare us for that. And, uh, Lord, we lift up those on our prayer lists. Uh, we lift up Susan, who's ill, and, and uh, uh, Rollins' mother, who had an injury, my mother as well, and and we praise you for the answered prayer, you know, for the Burrells and uh, the vehicle, and and for being with uh, our dear friend Jerry uh, in her accident. But we pray also that you will be with her and her family as her aunt passed away. She had a client that uh, had passed away too, and and you know, life is filled with ups and downs. Mm-hmm. And so we pray, Lord, that we will have the balance of Christ in our hearts. Please forgive us our sins, Lord. We claim Jesus' blood at Calvary. And we humbly ask, Lord, as we go through this study, that uh, we will have open minds and hearts, that the Holy Spirit may implant truth to us. Give me the words to speak, Lord. May they be yours and not my own. And bring thoughts to my mind you wish conveyed. Again, we thank you so much for Jesus and for hearing this prayer and answering it in his blessed name. This is part two uh, of a message I entitled, Sending Elijah. It is part of a series, the series that's entitled, This is My Body, Defining God's Church. Um, And in this series, we've come to find ten primary uh, primary characteristics described in the Word of God about His church. And now there are more attributes that you will find in Scripture about it. Uh, but there, these are probably what I would classify as the most prominent characteristics of the uh, church of God. And all others build upon these or fall within these traits like a hand fits in a glove, so to speak, you know. And uh, isn't that true about God's Word? I mean, you study it and it just is like puzzle pieces that all fit together. And uh, I, I love that about God. There's no uh, um, <clears throat> confusion with God. You know, the confusion comes from us. 
<laughs> or confusion. Well, it comes from the devil, but you know we can confuse things too. So, uh, if you were to study these characteristics and compare them to uh, religious organizations that are scattered around the world, uh, you'd be able to discern who were really God's people and who weren't God's people by Bible definition. Okay. Uh, now I say organizations because um, the Bible is pretty clear, quite clear really, uh, that God is not the author of confusion, like I said, and He is a God of order. And uh, His people will be organized. But right now, uh, His people are scattered all over the world, really. And there, are, there is some organization. Uh, don't misunderstand me. There is some organization, but nothing like it will be before Jesus returns. We're all going to be one, you know, and uh, of one mind, one spirit, and doing God's will together. And remember, um, and this is probably more for you who haven't heard some of the previous uh, studies, um, there are only two churches in the great controversy. I read my Bible, I, I, I've seen all these, to me they're theories. Well, there's a, there's a, God has two churches, a visible and invisible, and God has there's no, a great number of churches. There's only two churches in the great controversy. You're going to fall under one or the other. Now, though the others may be different organizations, but you're either going to fall under one or the other. And uh, uh, we'll get into proper um, biblical organization toward the end of this series because not only is there a misconception as to who and what the church is, uh, but also what proper gospel order is, too. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes you... you People don't think about it, but there's a, a tremendous reason why the family unit, for instance, is under heavy attack and assault in our culture. And it's because that's where church starts, Amen. is in the family. Adam and Eve were the first church on this earth, if you want to look at that, first organized church on this earth. And so uh, we'll get into a proper gospel order and such. Uh, um, uh, the, the problem, and, and what we've discussed in previous lessons, is the problem is that people just have, have uh, fallen for the same uh, deceptive methods of Satan that the Jews did. And they, they have substituted the symbol for uh, the true. And they sub substituted the temple for God. And what's happened today is people substitute the organization for the church. But see, the church is to be organized. See, they get, they get kind of confused by that. So we'll go through some of that. But I want to make it clear that God wants us to um, discern who are His called out ones so we may join them in doing His will and reaching lost souls and bringing them to Jesus. And that's what it's all about right now. That's what this conflict is about right now. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, we're very familiar with this. Jesus himself, he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever what? I have commanded you. See? And lo, here's the promise, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now see, so see, this has been the will of God since the fall of man. To call those who are in sin out of the synagogue of Satan and into the fold of God. See? And it's what the, the closing work of the three angels' messages, Revelation 14, is all about. 
calling his scattered people out of Babylon and into the fold of God. And uh, as I mentioned before, Satan's church goes by uh, a different term today. You know, it has been referred to as the synagogue of Satan, the Bible calls it, but it's also Babylon fallen, see? And uh, so we, we have uh, looked at before the two, there are two different churches, Church of Christ, Church Antichrist, see? So, <clears throat> but what I want to share is it's important for us to know the attributes of God's church so that we don't jump from uh, one frying pan, in essence, into another frying pan. And in my experience, that happens too frequently, especially in the Second Advent movement. It seems to happen quite a lot. People jump from a fallen organization right into another fallen organization. And then they get disgruntled with that, and they return back to a fallen organization. And round and round they go on the carousel of Babylon. See? And the devil just sits back, and he's the puppeteer. Oh, this is great. You know, I got him. It's because we don't study the book. You know, we used to be called, I've been told when I became Christian, the people of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think too many are reading the book. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and they fall for uh, deception. Isn't it true? I mean, things have been made so easy for us in our culture today. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, nobody wants to work hard for anything. Or I don't want to say nobody, but you know, it's getting more and more to where nobody work. Are you serious? You know, um, Somebody offers to give you things versus somebody saying, hey, let's go work at this. People are going to say, ah, I'd rather you give it to me. Isn't that our culture today? And so you find it pervades everything. People would rather go to a 10,000-member church and listen to things thrown at them than grab their Bible and dig through it prayerfully on their knees. You know, in the school of Christ. Well, yeah, see. What are you going to do for me is our culture, isn't it? And the Bible predicted that's the way it was going to be just before Jesus' return. There are a lot of attributes that are laid out by Paul, and we started this particular study uh, sending Elijah with that, that Peter said what, what it was going to be like in our day, Paul said what it was going to be like in our day, and I laid out the three different things. I'll get to that in just a minute. But um, we, we know that uh, Jesus wants us uh, to know who his people are. Just as an example, uh, Paul, at Saul at the time, was on the road to Damascus, and he meets Jesus, and Jesus could have enlightened him right then about everything, but Jesus put him in touch with the church at Damascus, see, with his people. It wasn't the, the general conference at Jerusalem he sent him to. That's where he had come from, see, <laughs> in persecuting the saints. So, you know, just an example there. See, so God wants us to know who His people are, and He wants us to come together. And He's laid out the attributes of who His church is. Um, and Jesus has promised that those who keep looking to Him will be given a spiritual discernment to tell the difference between error and truth, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He stated in Matthew 7, Verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets. Now that implies something, doesn't it? Not only is it a warning that there are false prophets, but it implies that there are true prophets, doesn't it? He says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Now when he says prophets there, it can be those who predict or those who, who speak or profess to speak for God. 
See? He says, they'll come to you in sheep's clothing. What's a sheep? Sheep is someone who follows the shepherd, right? right? So you profess to be a sheep, you're following Jesus the shepherd. See? They're going to wear the sheep's clothing, but inside, he says, they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them. Now, have you read it that way? It says, ye shall know them by their fruits. I take that as a promise. If I'm following Christ, he says, ye shall know them. See? Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Not in today's society. They don't want to work for it. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. That needs to sink in with a lot of people. Because the devil's going to do a lot of wonderful things and people are going to be deceived by that because it appears to be good fruit. But it's coming from a corrupt tree. People don't, you know, they don't think about it too, too much. Or like they should, I think, in my experience anyway. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. It can appear that way. Isn't that what it appeared to, to Eve? It appeared to be. See? But it wasn't, was it? Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down, that's cut down, and cast into the fire. And then he says it again. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. And so, a professed Christian whose character is sound will automatically display a righteous character in their words and their deeds. Because it's a good tree. doesn't say they might not make a mistake every once in a while, but you know that that's a good tree. If you have a good fruit tree, sometimes you don't get to it and the fruit will spoil a little bit. doesn't mean the tree's bad, does it? Okay? We can't just go by profession, though, can we? Or even what appear to be marvelous deeds in the name of God. No, not even miracles are an indicator alone, are they? Jesus said that to know who is His, one must look at the fruits. The fruits of their words, the fruits of their deeds. But then there's a contrast. He goes on in Matthew 7, verse 21. He says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So there's a qualifier there, isn't there? Those are the fruits. You're doing the will of the Father. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. If you look at the Greek there, it, it's, he's saying, I don't recognize you. You're saying, Lord, Lord, to me, but I don't know who you are. You know? And then he says, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's why he didn't know them. It's because they weren't doing the Father's will. They were doing iniquity, open rebellion. So let me ask you a question. Does God know who belongs to him? Amen. Yes, he does. And he wants us to be able to discern who belongs to him the best way that we can because we cannot read the heart. That's why Jesus said, uh, by their fruits ye shall know them. And uh, 
because he doesn't want us to be deceived and lost forever. So it's of vital importance for us to learn what attributes make up his people and thus his church. And here are the ten attributes we've discovered and have been taking a closer look at. This is kind of refreshing here. Uh, your memories. <laughs> uh, first, his church will have the nature of its master, the nature of Christ. It's going to be people who are uh, born-again believers. You know, humanity, divinity combined. Born again. Let's not talk about organizations now. It's a different subject. But his church, is, this is what his church is. It's going to be a spiritual ho uh, house with Christ at the head. It's going to be of the spiritual seed of Abraham, not of the fleshly seed of Ishmael. See? It's going to be, uh, in essence, a covenant keeping. And the Sabbath is a sign of that. And uh, we've covered, these are things that we've kind of covered already. Um, I'm going to be putting this series on uh, on DVD as soon as I can too. So, um, It's going to be a light that leads the way to the head, which is Christ. It's going to have gifts and bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And this includes the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. And this is what we're dealing with right now at this particular point. That's what this uh, study is about. It, uh, his church is going to stand upon the foundation of truth. Especially present truth. And our present truth today is the three angels' messages. So, you know, if somebody professes to be his church and they're not giving the three angels' messages, you're going to have to step back and go, hmm, I better investigate this a little further. It's going to have the faith of Jesus, or righteousness by faith. Now, you see how a lot of these go right in with number one. They build upon, all of them are, you know, are like puzzle pieces that come together. Uh, his church is going to keep the law of God, all ten commandments. That means it's going to be keeping the Sabbath. It'll be vibrant and living in Christ. It's going to be a fellowship of true believers. It's going to have godly love and it's going to have unity within it. See? Now, it's very interesting. Is it not that Jesus told us that we can determine who are His people by discerning their fruits? <laughs> One of the ten identifying attributes of the church is that it'll have the gifts and bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And this includes the testimony of Jesus, which the Bible defines as the spirit of prophecy. In part one, last time we were together, of sending Elijah, we started looking at the particular part of this attribute called the spirit of prophecy because it's a sign that God has placed in His Word for us. It's a sign of the remnant church in the last days. Since we're in the last days, I think we agree with that, don't we? Amen. <laughs> Since we're in the last days, it behooves us to know this sign as it helps to define God's people and thus His church. In part one, we, we read where the apostles Peter and Paul said that in the last days there would be scoffers and there would be mockers and it would be a perilous time, they said. And I listed three things uh, that have happened in the last 200 years, things that have brought the world into greater spiritual peril than at any previous time in world history. And these three things, these three things help usher in the last great battle between the two seeds spoken of in Genesis 3.15. Between the seed of the woman, which is God's people, his church, his remnant, right? And the seed of the serpent, which is the devil's people, his church, the synagogue of Satan, Babylon, as you would. Those three things were, first, the development of higher criticism. 
And I went through that. I'm not going to go through it all again because that would be uh, preaching part one again. <laughs> but I want to hit the highlights here. The development of higher criticism at its very base. Higher criticism at its very base has the seed of doubt. You doubt the veracity of God's word. You doubt the author of the books. You doubt the uh, uh, meaning for you today because, oh, it was that culture at that time. It's all based upon doubt at the foundation versus lower criticism, which is you take the Bible as it reads. That's what it is. In a nutshell, that's the differences. The second thing is the development of the theory of evolution and what I call, the, you know, is, is referred to as uniformitarianism. Okay. And it's a huge word. It's almost too hard for me to pronounce. It's <laughs> so big. Uniformitarianism. Essentially, we're taught it in the public schools, in geology, you know, where, for example, and I use the example of they, they'll go into a lake bed and they'll see over a short period of time how much sediment has gone and they use that to trace it all the way back and say, because well, as Peter said, these scoffers will say, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So they, they say, oh, so it continues. We can take it all the way back. They did a similar thing with trying to use the moon phases and days to go back and try to say uh, when exactly Jesus was crucified. And they came out and they said, oh, yeah, it was in the year uh, uh, 3 A.D. on a Friday at a certain time. They missed a lot of things in there. Jewish custom, you know, sometimes feast days got changed because of weather. They got, you know, they missed a lot of things. Plus, prophecy tells us exactly when he was crucified. Which contradicted, <laughs> contradicted what they said, see. So, that, that, this is the second thing that has brought us into this perilous time. The third thing was the development of modern spiritualism. Why is it called modern spiritualism? Why is it called modern? Well, from the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 686, it says, modern spiritualism, resting upon the same foundation, is but a revival in a new form of the witchcraft and demon worship that God condemned and prohibited of old. So, it's called modern because it had been dormant, per se, for a while. <clears throat> See? And by the way, uh, to back that up a little bit, you cannot find the word spiritualism in Webster's 1828 Dictionary. 1828 was not in the dictionary. You see, it had been pretty much dormant until the uh, wrappings of the Fox Sisters in 1848. See? so dormant that Daniel Webster didn't even have it in his 1828 dictionary. <laughs> well, so the three developments that I shared, higher criticism, evolution, uh, uh, uniformitarianism, and uh, uh, modern spiritualism, show us how dangerous the world has become and why we're living in an age and world of true unbelief in God, no matter what the people's profession may be. I mean, Peter talked about it, Paul talked about it, God knew about it. And because God knew about it, He did a great thing for us. Isn't that like God, the God of the Bible? 
He's always esteeming us, isn't he? He did a great thing for us. We learned that in such a time throughout history, God would send a prophet. That's what we learned in part one. He'd send a prophet, prophet to help his people. So, he, so his name would always be on the earth. That's one reason. To draw us to him so he would have someone who represented his name on the earth. You know, the Bible says that it's going to get so wicked out that if God doesn't shorten it, we'd all be wiped out. And so he would send prophets to get the attention, see, of his people. We noted three specific times when God sent a prophet. But the person was described as actually being more than a prophet. We saw that three times God was going to send a prophet that was more than a prophet. Moses, to bring uh, them out of Egypt, he was more than a prophet. John the Baptist, to introduce them to Christ, he was more than a prophet. Jesus himself said. And an end-time prophet, to prepare God's people to meet Jesus face to face at his return. And all of these people are referred to as Elijah prophets. And all three are more than a prophet. And we're interested about the Elijah prophet for the time of the end that God promised to send. Our scripture reading was Malachi 4 and verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And we're going to discover that God has sent the Elijah prophet to prepare his people for the return of Jesus. And who that person is, we're going to discover that he sent. In Matthew 17, and verse 9, Jesus here is speaking, you know, we're we're learning here, it says, as as they came down from the mountain, and that was, they're coming down the mountain from the transfiguration experience. That's what the, the context is here. And they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? Now, they would just come down from the transfiguration, didn't they? Who did they see? They saw Jesus glorified there, didn't they? But he was talking to two people. And who were they? It was Moses, and who was the other one? It was Elijah. And so they're asking, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? Now, I want you to remember, the Jews were looking for the Elijah who had talked to Ahab and Jezebel to come down from heaven, and that had not happened. Now, it did at the transfiguration, but to the Jews, that hadn't hadn't happened. They went out to John, remember, and they said, are you Elijah? And he's like, no, I'm not. That's who they were looking for. They were looking for the actual Elijah who had talked to Ahab, you know, rebuked Ahab, Jezebel, to come down from heaven. And that hadn't happened. You see, they didn't understand what Malachi meant as they too often, like I said before, looked at the literal instead of the spiritual. And so, continuing on, Verse 11, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already. 
and they knew him not. But have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood. Now, see, they'd been witness to the transfiguration and they saw the actual Elijah, right? And so they're saying, Elijah's come! You know, the scribes, they say that Elijah must come and Jesus said, oh, he's come already. Then they understood that he's spoken to them of who? John the Baptist. You see? Now let me ask you something. Can, can you imagine a greater tragedy than this? God sends to you his chosen people, a special messenger, somebody who is more than a prophet. And since the days of Moses, there had never been anybody like this with the people of God. Yet you do not know who it is. So you miss the blessing God has for you. The religious leaders turned their backs on John the Baptist. They wouldn't listen. And this is what happened to them. This is what happened to the Jews. I don't want it to happen to I don't want it to happen to me, and I don't want it to happen to you. Matthew twenty one, verse twenty eight. Jesus here he gives an example. Speaking along this line as well. He says, But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented, and he went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. And he, he went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father. So which of the two, he said, did the will of the father? And they say unto him, The first. <laughs> now this is an example of also knowledge, but no heart change. See? Oh, well, they can recognize that. Well, the first one did. And uh, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. What a rebuke. Huh? For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented, and afterward that ye might believe him. You see, they professed to follow God and vowed that they would follow Him, but they did not believe the special messenger that God sent to them. And Jesus said the harlots and the tax collectors were going to be saved before they would be because they actually did believe the message that was sent, and they repented. And all the leadership of the Jews and many of the Jews professed to do the Father's will and said, I will go, but didn't go. It's a dangerous thing, isn't it? It's a dangerous thing, very dangerous thing, to reject a messenger whom God sends to you. It's supremely dangerous because you're turning your back on the Lord Himself. And that's the way God accounts it. In 1 Samuel 8, verse 4 to 7, you remember they reject, uh, uh, come, the, the Israelites come to uh, um, Samuel and they say, We want to have a king. Right? We want a king. First Samuel 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. 
But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord, and the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. If I reject a messenger whom God sends, I have turned my back on the Lord himself. I will never be right with the Lord again unless I repent. And this is a very serious matter, isn't it? What did God mean when He said He would send Elijah the prophet? We read in Malachi 4 and verse 5. What did He really mean? The Jews thought He meant the literal Elijah would be sent. Jesus corrected that to where even the disciples then understood what He was talking about. Luke chapter 1 verse 17 And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. To make ready a people. Should, does, do you think God wants his people to be ready before Jesus returns? So, in the spirit and the power, not the same body, not the same person that talked with Ahab and Jezebel, but an Elijah prophet, a Reformation prophet, who is more than a prophet. The Lord promised that we would have an Elijah prophet again in the end times. Because the Lord knew these perilous times would come. He knew that would happen to the world on account of the theories of higher criticism uh, that would destroy the faith of Christian churches. He knew that would happen in the scientific world because of the theory of evolution. It would destroy confidence in the Bible. He knew what would happen to the world because of the development of modern spiritualism. It would not only destroy faith in the true God, but it would deceive you into worshiping Satan. So God promised His children a special messenger. He promised to send them Elijah the prophet. God considered this so important that in the book of Revelation He describes two characteristics of His remnant people so that we could discern between His true church and the Antichrist church. Babylon fallen. Notice what these two traits are. Revelation 12 verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which do what? First one, they keep the commandments of God, and then what? Number two, they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible gives us an answer. That's what I love about God's Word. <laughs> it's got lots of answers in it. Revelation 19, verse 10. Here John, angel appears to him, he falls at his feet, says, I, and I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, the angel speaking to John, Don't do that. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, he says. For the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy. Now the word prophecy describes any inspired message communicated by God through a prophet. Uh, prophecy may be a prediction of future events, though that isn't really that common, but it may. 
the expression spirit of prophecy refers specifically to the manifestation of the spirit in the form of a special gift of uh, the Holy Spirit that inspires whoever the recipient is uh, and enables them to speak authoritatively as a representative of God when moved by God to do so. So the church of God in the time of the end, in our time, will have the gift of prophecy from the Holy Spirit. And besides all the gifts of the Spirit, it will have a prophet to guide and prepare the church for the final battle before the end of all things. As we read, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. See? Again, this is one of the identifying attributes of the church of God in our day, the last days. We're living in a time when God is in the process of calling millions of people to become a part of this remnant, the remnant seed. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 to, to 13, we talked about this before, um, about spiritual gifts, about gifts that God has given to His people. Verse 11, He gave some apostles and some prophets, you see there, and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? Verse 12 tells us, for the perfecting of the saints. Isn't that preparing a people for the Lord? For the perfecting of the saints... For what? The work of the ministry, to help prepare others. For the edifying of the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. What kind of perfect person? Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. A perfect Christ-like character. That's why these gifts are given. And this makes it clear to us that the gifts of the Spirit exist until we come into the unity of the faith until the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ unto that perfect man. Now that hasn't happened yet. That will not happen until the church is ready for Jesus to come in the clouds of heaven. So we know from that scripture that spiritual gifts are to continue until the second coming, including the gift of prophecy. Some people... Uh, are terribly mixed up about spiritual gifts. <laughs> they think that the main spiritual gift, for example, is talking in tongues. But if you look at spiritual gifts in Romans 12 or in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 or in Ephesians 4, which we just touched on, you'll find that tongues is just one of many gifts. And it's never even mentioned as the most important one. <laughs> most important gifts are the gifts of apostleship and of prophecy, which is laid out. But I want to go back to Revelation 12, 17. And, and I want to compare it with Revelation 19, verse 10 again, so that it is clear. Okay? It says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 19, 10, the angel tells John, uh, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so you kind of combine there. The, the dragon is who? Dragon's the devil, isn't it? You see that in verse 9. You back up. 
the woman is the church, a woman in a symbol in prophecy and other parts of the Bible, is symbolic of a church. A virgin woman, a pure church, a harlot, an impure church, a fallen church. So, the dragon is the devil, the woman is the church, and the rest of her offspring, or the remnant of her seed, are the last church at the end, the end times. And the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, you could, you could have it read like this, and I kind of like to do this just for myself so I, I have it in my mind, clearly. You could read it like this. And the devil was enraged with the church, and he went to make war with the last of the church who keep the commandments of God and have the spirit of prophecy. So God's last people in the world will be keeping the commandments, which means they will be a Sabbath-keeping church because that commandment's right in the heart of the Ten Commandments. And they will have also the gift of the spirit of prophecy. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? And I want to tell you, and I'm not the least bit embarrassed to tell you, God has sent His people not only a prophet, but also somebody who's more than a prophet. A special messenger. If we would listen to this special messenger, we would be guided back to all the truth in God's word. Because, beloved, sad to say, we are far from it right now. So much so that Jesus is waiting to return. The Bible tells us we can hasten his coming. So God is going to have a perfect church. He's going to have a perfect church. It's called the church triumphant. Right now we're the church militant is how, how it's referred to. Because we're in a battle. But he is going to have a church triumphant. And to have a perfect church, the members have to be adhering to everything in the Bible. Would you agree with that? Amen. And the Lord knows that you and I are living. This is why I love God so much. He knows that we're living 6,000 years from the Garden of Eden. And we all, compared with all our forefathers have very feeble minds. <laughs> so the Lord, He chose to send us a special messenger to lead us back to the Bible truth. We've got to remember that God is our Creator. And His ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I take comfort in that. <laughs> I really do, because that, that gives me some peace of mind. That tells me God is in control. In other parts I read, God cares for me. He cares so much for me. He poured all heaven out in Jesus. And God cares so much for me. He pours out the Holy Spirit. And, and God cares so much for me that the Holy Spirit gives, uh, gives me gifts to help me to be more like Jesus. God, His ways are not my ways. <laughs> I thank God for that. But you come to understand that. And you see that in what Isaiah is saying. And you go to 1 Corinthians 1, and it shows how different God's ways are from our ways. And I want you to pay close attention to this, for this is, this is really special. 
At least it is to me. It's very special. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 19. Paul says, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. <laughs> For the Jews require what? A sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. Remember they had all the Greek philosophers. See? Wisdom was their God. The Jews they reportedly followed God, but they sought after a sign. See, They were descendants of Abraham. That's the sign, see? We can trace our, our lineage clear back to Father Abraham. In verse 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Don't we see that? You can go to those who are wealthy, those who are strong, and they, they look at, the, uh, oh, you're just a Jesus freak. Have you ever heard that before? Well, maybe I've aged myself. Might not hear it so much anymore, Jesus freak, but, you know, oh yeah, Jesus. You know, when you tell some, some people, some of my old classmates, I say, and, and it sounds so cliche, but, you know, Jesus can help you with that. Oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's foolishness to them. See? But notice verse 27. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. God didn't choose Israel because Israel was mighty but because they were few. <laughs> and so, when God chose to send His people in the last days a special messenger, He chose to send somebody who would not only be a prophet, but would be more than a prophet. A special messenger who, if they would listen, would lead them back to the truths of the Bible so they would be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Because when Christ comes, He's coming to receive a perfected church. Not a backslidden church. Not an apostate church. Not a lukewarm Laodicean church. But a perfected church. Jesus doesn't come back and wave a magic wand and we're all perfect. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's the culture of today. Do something for me. <laughs> Isn't it? I've run into 
ministers, professed ministers of the gospel that teach that you can't overcome sin, Jesus changes you at his appearing. The Bible doesn't teach that. God is coming back for a perfected church. Now, don't misunderstand. We don't perfect ourselves. We walk by faith. And when you walk by faith, you change things. There are things that are changed around you in your life. You're not the same person. My sister-in-law and I, she's, she's been uh, in the grave for a great number of years, but she knew me before I met Christ. And we didn't get along very good, me and her. When I met Christ, she said to me one time, she said, you are a changed person. You're, there, there's something different about you. Well, I didn't change myself. I allowed Jesus in my heart. Amen. And He does the changing. He just says, have you ever found anywhere in the Bible, because I sure haven't, where Jesus says, get all cleaned up, change this and that and the other thing, then come to me. I don't find it anywhere. Jesus just says, come to me. And I'll give you rest. <laughs> Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, he says. That's what he says. So we read in the Bible that God chose to use an instrument that would be so weak that we would be forced to recognize if we are willing to recognize that this was the power and the wisdom and the might of God. God chose to send His message through the weakest of the weak. Now who are the weak? Well, that can be debated a little bit, but I want to look at 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. Who are the weak? Peter's talking to husbands. He says, Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the what? Weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Please do not be insulted, ladies. <laughs> but in the Bible, Peter does say that the wife is the weaker vessel. I didn't say that. Please don't be offended. It is in the Bible. <laughs> it merely means that women are weaker than men, essentially, is what he's, he's talking about. You know? So if God said He was going to send a message through the weakest of the weak, who would it have to be? I mean, yeah. It first of all would have to be a woman, wouldn't it? But it would not be just a woman. There are some women who are much stronger than other women. It'd have to be a woman who was weak. Not just weak as a woman, but a weak woman, if you understand what I'm saying. Somebody might say, well, Pastor Joel, that's impossible. That's impossible. If God was going to send somebody who was going to be more than a prophet, obviously He'd send a man. I mean, Moses was a man. Uh, John the Baptist was a man. God would have to send a man. And I know I've run into some people who don't believe that women can be prophets. I've run into that. Have you ever checked it out in the Bible? That's where I come from. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were women who were chosen as prophets. It didn't even matter what their status, uh, uh, their status was as a woman. Sometimes men judge women by their status. But whatever her family status was, I found that there were women in all different family relations or statuses. 
and God still chose them as prophets. For instance, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, it says Philip had four daughters who were prophets, and these daughters were virgins. It's in Acts 21, verse 8 and 9. The next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip, the evangelist, which was one of the seven. He was one of the first seven deacons, you see. And we abode with him, look at verse 9, and the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. So can a virgin be a prophet? Yes. But would you have to be a virgin to be a prophet? No. Because in both the Old and New Testament, there are recorded married women who are prophets. Sometimes it even records the husband's name. <laughs> so according to both the Old and New Testament, you could be a virgin and be a prophet, or you could be married and be a prophet. And then there were women who were prophets whose husbands had died. Just because their husbands had died and they were widows didn't disqualify them from being a prophet. In fact, when Jesus was born, they brought him into the temple and one of the persons who came and held him, one of the persons who adored him and admired him, was Anna, a prophetess. Read about it in Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. It says, And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Aser. She was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a what? Widow of about four score and four years. You know how long that was? You know what a score is? It's 20. Four score would be what? 80 and four years. She had been a widow for 84 years. Married for seven years. Her husband died. She remained a widow the rest of her life. And it says, She departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of Him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She held Jesus as a baby. And gave thanks to God that the Messiah had come. She, she was a widow. She was a prophetess. She was a, a, a prophetess that the Lord gave special instruction to. She knew when she looked at this baby that it was the Messiah. Now how did she know? She was a prophet. The Bible presents a number of instances where women have been entrusted with the gift of the, uh, of the Spirit, that particular gift of prophecy. Um, 1 Corinthians 14.1 is where you'll find that the, these gifts enumerated. Miriam, the sister of Moses, was a prophetess, wasn't she? Exodus 15.20. Deborah was a, uh, a prophet. She's the one who inspired uh, uh, aid and aided Barak to conquer the Canaanites. Judges chapter 4. Isaiah's wife was a prophetess. Isaiah 8 and verse 3. Also Huldah who aided Hilkiah the priest in the reforms of Josiah. Remember the king of Judah. 2 Kings 22, 2 Chronicles 34. So throughout the Old and New Testament, you'll find that women, God had chosen women to be prophets at particular times. And as we read, sometimes God uses the weakest of the weak to bring glory to His name, see, that no man may be glorified. Now, there are also false prophetesses that are mentioned in Scripture. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 14. You remember Nehemiah. I mean, they were there rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, right? And the devil was attacking and attacking. He used every 
form that he could to get him to stop building the walls. And that's what he's continued to do to this day. To all who are repairers of the breach. Amen? Nehemiah 6 verse 14. My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works. And on the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear. So he's calling to God to say, you know, help me deal with these false prophets and these people who are attacking. I'm leaving them in your care to take care of. Then he, he told the people, get a weapon. Hold a weapon in one hand, work with the other. See? So Nehemiah here, he speaks her name explicitly. As to warn that, what he was doing, he was warning also that false prophets like her were again busy among the people seeking to seduce them and the leaders from listening to the voice of the true prophets. And by the way, Satan does that. You think that uh, uh, if you go back and look at some of the history around the time John the Baptist came, there were all kinds of false Christs that were raised up because the true Christ was here. There were all kinds of false prophets that were raised up because a true Elijah prophet was there. The same with the Elijah prophet in the end of time. If you go back and look and we get into as we, as we will, you'll find that Satan raised up false prophets around the same time. Why? He's the author of confusion. Revelation 2 verse 20. Here's another example of a false prophetess. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, Jesus speaking, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So, as Jezebel sponsored the worship of Baal in Israel, you can go back to 1 Kings 21 to see that, so in John's day, some uh, a false prophetess was attempting to lead astray the church there at Thyatira. Then you read in Joel 2, verse 28 and 29. He talks about there being prophets in the end of time. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters, see that word daughters there? Shall what? Prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. So the prophet Joel foretold the pouring out of the gift of prophecy in the latter times upon the daughters and the handmaids. And this special pouring out of the spirit results in the display of what? Supernatural gifts such as prophesying. Now I've run into some people too who, who don't believe there will be any more prophets at all. Since Paul and they even sometimes have a hard time saying that Paul was even a prophet. And I just shake my head. It's a remarkable. Why would Jesus warn of false prophets if there weren't going to be any more prophets? <laughs> you know. And then you read Joel and you read Malachi and it makes it clear that God is sending an Elijah prophet. Some don't believe in women prophets, but we've seen that to be against Scripture as well, haven't we? Now remember, the Lord had said, I'm going to choose the weakest of the weak. So the person whom God chose as a special messenger to his people in the last days, the Elijah prophet was a person, 17 years of age, who was so weak that she could not write without her hand shaking. 
She had been in an accident when she was about uh, uh, nine years of age. A girl had become angry with her, had thrown a rock, and that rock hit her in the nose, and she had a deformed nose for the rest of her life. And when the rock hit her in the nose, of course, a lot of blood vessels, we talked a little bit about head injury <laughs> earlier today, uh, a lot of blood came out, uh, gushed out. She lost so much blood that she had to be carried home. She was so weak from the loss of blood that she couldn't go back to school. And after so many months, she was able to go back to school, but when she tried to write, again, her hand shook so bad she couldn't write. So she had to quit school. She was not expected to live very long either. You know, it's very interesting. You read some of the background of, of uh, this person. Um, the first thing her father would ask when he came home from work was, is Ellen still alive? Can you imagine? You know, having a child that sickly, and, and you think she's going to die at any time. And of course she had to go out and work. He'd come home, is Ellen still alive? And that's the way she grew up. Is Ellen still alive? Is Ellen still here? She had no more than a third grade education. That is the person whom God chose. Because he was going to do something to show the difference between his ways and man's ways. He was going to show that the foolishness of God was wiser than men and the weakness of God was mightier than men like we read in Scripture. And that woman at the age of 17 years old received her first vision from God. And after she received her first vision, a number of times she had very serious medical problems. And again, it was thought that she'd die. And die sooner rather than later. And one time, uh, I remember reading, one time she went to see a physician. And there were two other ladies there waiting to see the physician in front of her. She had to wait. And the first one went in to see the physician, and then the, the second one went in to see the physician, and then Ellen went in to, to see the physician. And he said, he came out, he said, all three of you have heart trouble. But he said to Ellen that her heart is far worse than, than the others. She wasn't expected to live because of her heart problems, is what the doctor was saying. She lived about 60 more years after that. <laughs> and that's a miracle. The Lord healed her of that. Another time she had cancer. Because of the cancer, she could have died, but the Lord, of course, He healed her of that. As she learned more and more of the Lord, some people have a misconception. When God calls a prophet, they become more than a human being. You know what I mean? She's, the person is still a human being. Moses was still a human being. John the Baptist was still a human being. They cut off his head. <laughs> you know? So, it seems like we have this, this habit. We have this, we want to lift people up. You know. Now, it's true, you, you respect people in positions. But the, the Jews, they lifted Moses so high that to them, he was like God. You know. And uh, so, but uh, uh, some people lift up and... It, lift a, a prophet up and when they see well you know that prophet may stumble or may have said some things at one time and then you know may have said something at a, a, a later time that seems like it contradicts because they've lifted them up now they're disappointed 
You see what I'm saying? Well, they're still a person. They're still a human being. They still can make mistakes. Elijah made mistakes. <laughs> you know? About the only prophet that I know of that I, you know he made mistakes because the Bible tells you that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short and, and, and such. But you can't find anything about Daniel or Daniel ever. <laughs> but you know he did, you know. But anyway, she wasn't supposed to live. She couldn't write. She was too weak. She was too timid. The Lord allowed these things to happen so men would find out that he was the one in charge. And this person had a special message from God to his people. I mean, she said to the Lord at first, I could never address anybody in public. I can't write my handshakes. Well, how much did she write? She wrote more pages of manuscript than any other woman in recorded history. Over 100,000 pages. That came from somebody who was shaky with a second or third grade education who at the age of 17 was supposed to die in a few months from tuberculosis. God uses the weak to confound the mighty. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that there would be false prophets. Ellen Harmon, later Ellen White, after she married James White, a minister, she told the people to check her out. This is something that a prophet will do as well. In uh, one of her writings, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 671, she says, because of course people are coming and they're going to have doubts. And she says, God is either teaching His church, repro reproving their wrongs and strengthening their faith, or He is not. This work is of God, or it is, is not. God does nothing in partnership with Satan. Then she says, my work bears the stamp of God or the stamp of the enemy. There is no halfway work in the matter. The testimonies are the Spirit of God or of the devil. As with all things, God says, taste and see that I am good. You have to taste. Some people don't even take a taste. So we must check out anyone who claims to be a prophet. Wouldn't you agree with that? Several years ago when I was attending the, the uh, trademark trial uh, between the General Conference uh, of Seventh-day Adventists and Rafael Perez down there in Miami, uh, a man came up to me. Uh, we were getting up early in the, you know, at the motel and we were having breakfast and there were a lot of like believers there, you know, brethren. And this man, I didn't know who he was. Uh, never met him before. He came up to me and he said, I'm a prophet of God. And uh, now I'm typically very skeptical, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I don't scoff at anybody who claims to be a prophet because the Lord could send a prophet. But there is a text in the Bible that says to prove all things. First Thessalonians 5.21 So when this man told me that he was a prophet, I had some questions for him. Now I found out that he was mistaken. Doesn't mean he was a, a bad man. He was just mistaken. <laughs> um, then there was a lady from France several years ago that said she had the gift of prophecy. Well, she too didn't pass the tests. Um, but I don't scoff at their profession, but they must pass the test, the biblical tests. In fact, if you or I or anybody said, I believe that the Lord has sent me to you know, the gift of prophecy, uh, we should be checked out by the seasoned brethren to see whether we meet the test of a prophet. 
which are in the Bible. So next time we get together, uh, in part three of Sending Elijah, we'll take a look at these biblical tests for a prophet of God and see whether or not the Elijah prophet has come to prepare people to meet Jesus face to face. If it's found that the Elijah prophet has come and is in the per come in the person of Ellen White, then we all have a choice to make, don't we? Are we as individuals going to rejoice that God loves us so much that He sent us the Elijah prophet? Or are we going to be like the Jews and reject the person that was more than a prophet? History declares their mistake. Will we make the same mistake as they made? I pray that we don't. pray that we don't. I'll leave you with these words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. Do we do that? <laughs> in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we again thank you so very, very much uh, for your incredible love for us. Uh, we are too often at variance with thee, Lord. And yet still, you pour out such wonderful gifts upon us. You give us homes to live in, provide for all our necessities. Uh, to, to live here and you've given your holy word that we may come to understand who you really are you gave Jesus to die in our place and to, to be the example to all of us of how to live you've given us the Holy Spirit and only convicts us of where we're wrong but helps to correct our mistake and uh, lead us on the path of righteousness and teaches us and changes our desires from fleshly desires to spiritual uh, righteous desires. We thank you, Lord, so much that you gave us the Sabbath day uh, to come together to worship thee and to get a taste of uh, what it will be like when Jesus returns and we're all together again. Lord, keep us to that day. and Keep us through the coming week till we meet again. We pray in Jesus' blessed name. The closing hymn for today.